Welcome to episode 200 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is our Observing with our guest, Mary McIntyre edition. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. But we have a, we have a quick uh, couple thanks first. Uh, Shane, uh, do you want to just sort of thank these uh, two great Patreon supporters of ours? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks, uh, Ozzy and Austin uh, for your Patreon support. Um, as always, we appreciate uh, all of our Patreon supporters and really all of our listeners. Um, it helps us continue doing this thing that we enjoy. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And uh, also, we had a lot of um, warm wishes and well wishes and notes for our 200th episode. And so we really appreciate all your kind words. And one of the top questions with that was, what are you doing for your 200 episode? How are you going to celebrate? Are you going to do like a recap or something? And I was saying, no, we're having a special guest on. That's our treat. So without further ado, we'll uh, get into it. Uh, shall I read the, the introduction, Jane, or did you want to read it? Yeah, go for it, Chris. All right, thanks. So um, I'm going to introduce our, our guest. Our guest is Mary McIntyre. She is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, FRAS and an Oxfordshire-based amateur astronomer slash astrophotographer who has a lifelong interest in astronomy. She is passionate about astronomy outreach and has been giving talks on astronomy and astrophotography since 2015 to camera clubs, astronomy societies, local schools, and scope groups, as well as running astronomy sketching workshops. She loves sharing her knowledge and experience. Mary lives in rural Oxfordshire, UK with her husband, Mark, and has a back garden observatory that's currently under repair I understand welcome Mary <laughs> thank you for having me it's great to have you here yeah so yeah let's uh give a quick shout out to Mark Radici first of Refreshing Views he actually set us up um to have a conversation together because you you and Mark have been collaborating uh, between your YouTube channels we have yeah we've done a couple of sketching collabs together and last time we did a collab we just sat and chatted for about 90 minutes about everything astronomy which is great yeah i watched that your your cat kept hopping up and trying to, to eat the biscuits it looked like yes. <laughs> yeah yeah my cats stuff. are outrageous <laughs> cool can you just before we get going can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your youtube channel and your your other uh, media feeds yeah, um, my YouTube channel started off initially just as somewhere that I put time lapse videos because I do a lot of photography and ever if my camera has been pointing the same way taking pictures, I make a time lapse, whether it's just a straight night sky or star trails or Milky Way, whatever it is. If I make a video, it goes on my YouTube channel. But in the last kind of year and a half or so, I've started adding a bit more vlog stuff and a bit of tutorial stuff as well. I don't want to be fully tutorial based, but I think because I do love sharing my knowledge when it comes to photography, anything I can share that might help somebody else achieve something I've figured out the hard way, then I'm happy to share that. So started off, I think, just by helping people do international space station transits and kind of evolved from there. So I've got loads of ideas of things I want to put on there in the future, but in kind of bite-sized pieces so that it's a bit more accessible to beginners. Cool. And the uh, YouTube channel is uh, Mary McIntyre. FRAS on YouTube, correct? That's, it is, yeah. yeah. And I do put some time lapses of me creating astronomy sketches there, and there's a bit of sketching tutorial stuff there too. So, big mixture. And you also have a website. I know when I was uh, when I was first contacting you, I was like, um, you know, doing a little bit of research, and you've got a great website with a lot of other uh, information that links out. And I understand that's Mary McIntyre. Um, astronomy.co.uk is that correct that's right yeah there's yeah. links there to all my other social media channels so I'm on Instagram and Flickr and Twitter and there's a Facebook page all the usual <laughs> all the usual places people need to be these days so all the links are on my website with and there's galleries there as well so if you're just interested in looking at the sketches or just photos or whatever it's easier to navigate there cool cool so you're a fellow of the uh, Royal Astronomical Society so what uh what, what's involved in that? When did you become a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society? I think it was in 2018. And it was, and I'd thought about applying to become a fellow for quite a few years, but it was always that, I don't know if it's just characteristic of women in astronomy feeling their work wasn't quite good enough or whatever, but I was kind of like listing all the stuff that I do in terms of outreach. And I thought I do actually have something 
to offer here. So I, I thankfully have a lovely friend who championed me, but I think I would have got in anyway without that because I, I do do quite a lot. And it's just really, it adds extra gravitas to me as a speaker, but also it's about promoting the hobby, being out there and just, just being a good face for astronomy and in a professional way and helping people learn. And I know that a lot of people that are fellows are actual kind of working astronomers in research and stuff like that. So there's lots of opportunities for, for doing talks and outreach events via them as well. So yeah, it's it I feel very honored that they said yes still. I think it's really lovely that uh, that I'm a fellow, you know, it's it's great. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really cool. We have in Canada, they kind of copied it a little bit and it's it's a little bit different, but they have the F-R-A-S-C because we're the R-A-S-C here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really cool, though. Yeah. And I mean, just just really inspiring for for lots of people out there, um, you know, that uh, that you have that uh, that honor bestowed upon you. That's really cool. Um, and one of the other things that I saw in your video, actually, my my wife was really excited to see one of your videos, which is which is exceptionally rare. I don't think she's been in as excited to see any of the YouTube videos I've, I've shared with her on astronomy. <laughs> um, but this one she was, and you were, um, you were, cro- you were crocheting the JWST, uh, the, the James Webb Space Telescope um, into a <laughs> pillow. <laughs> yeah, well, Sophia Gadnazza, who is a, a, an astrophysicist, and I think she's based in California, I saw that she'd made one and I'd kind of had at the back of my head that I wanted to do it because it's basically just a bunch of hexagons, which is not difficult to crochet. But I had such trouble finding the right colour wool in any of my local shops. And because of the pandemic, I've not wanted to go anywhere really busy. So I had to order it online and then it just took forever. And finally, just after Christmas, I had time to sit down and make it. And it was so much fun. And I thought, I'm going to make a video on this because it's the, like the geekiest crochet project that I've ever done. You know, it's most of my craft stuff usually is around Halloween related horror stuff. So to do something that was that geeky um, and it's just great. I mean, just having the crocheted mirror was fantastic. I've now made it into an actual cushion and nice. the cats think it's great. I love it. It's the biggest cushion we have. So we are fighting over it. I can see me having to make another one. So we have one each. My husband is an astronomer as well, by the way. So we end up with two of everything. So nice. <laughs> nice. Awesome. We had it. Go ahead, Shane. Yeah, I was just going to say that's the second super cool like yeah. James Webb Space Telescope craft thing that we've seen now. Uh, the other one, I forget who it was, Chris, but it, like you said, Mary, it really is simple. It's just a bunch of hexagons and he made a, a clock. He got some like foil, I don't know, tin maybe. I'm not even sure. I can't remember, but put it all together and then he... He put an image of himself, I think, yeah. to, scale to scale against the, the hexagon mirrors on this clock. It was super cool. I think it was Astro. Yeah, you might be so, right. Somebody challenged me to make a life-size one crochet. If I'm going to need to see a larger order of wool to do that. And But there's, um, there's a home depot store in this country that sells got like shiny gold hexagons that you can stick on the wall. So I know several people that have made a kind of wall art thing from that but I mean it's just screaming to be turned into a James Webb telescope <laughs> yeah for sure that's awesome um maybe next one here Mary um you do a lot of sketching and and your sketching is phenomenal uh do you have uh, like a background or, or formal education in in like developing artistic skills or is this just a, a natural thing that that you do I guess I always liked art at school, but because I, I was such a science geek and knew I wanted a career in science of some kind, I didn't have enough options left at school to do astro- um, astronomy, <laughs> to do art at GCSE, which is our high school level. But when I was doing my A-levels, I dropped physics because I, I couldn't get my head around it. I was the first year to have done GCSE physics and then gone to A-level without any correction in the A-level syllabus. So there was stuff missing from the exam before, which made it really difficult to actually get your head around what you was being taught at the next level. And so I, I ended up dropping that. So I had free time and I did art GCSE at college at the same time as my other science A-levels. And I really enjoyed it. It was more kind of textile based and stuff like that. And I had a little bit of still art kind of tuition privately just in the 90s but that's it really it's just a case of 
I want to try and draw some stuff. And I first tried it and my pictures were really terrible. But I thought I really love this because I realized what really prompted it for me is because I got really obsessed with the photography. And I realized I was going outside, opening the observatory, grabbing some pictures, closing the roof and coming in. And I hadn't looked through an eyepiece in a year. And that made me so sad because I've loved looking at the night sky since I was aware of it. So I thought I'm going to start off just with Jupiter and mark out where the Galileans are. So my first pictures of Jupiter that I drew, Jupiter's not even round, but every night that it was clear, I went out and I plotted where the Galilean moons were. And I thought, this is amazing. And I'm, I, you learn more. You really have to look at something to draw it. And you do it yourself, don't you? It's not the same as taking a picture where you can spend 18 hours processing it, but you're not studying it. You don't know where the structure of the nebula is relative to the stars or where that crater shadow reaches under a certain sun angle. You just don't notice that stuff with a picture. So I just got hooked on sketching from there on. So I I do a mixture. Some of it I do at the eyepiece, but because I have spine problems and mobility problems, there's a limit to how long I can sit outside in the cold, hunched over an eyepiece. So I'm hoping to build a parallelogram mount to make the ergonomics a bit more comfortable so I can do more at the eyepiece. But all my lunar sketches are done from photographs. So it's actually harder to draw from a photograph because they're always high res stacked images that are showing you every single boulder, which you just don't see through the eyepiece. And it's so easy to get super obsessed with getting every detail there so it looks like a photograph and at the end of the day when I'm teaching this I want to tell people you're making a sketch not a photograph if you can see pencil marks it's fine if something's a bit wonky it's fine it will still look like the crater that you're drawing so I try not to be too hard on myself if I think something's not coming out right but (laughs) but that connection even if you do it from a photograph you still have to study the fine detail in a way that you just don't do when you take a picture. So I love it. Yeah. That, that, I love that comment. Um, I'm not much of a sketcher, you know, between us two, Chris is certainly the sketcher, but what I really, really appreciate about anybody that does sketching is what you mentioned, Mary, about like, you really have to study the object, you know, and really observe it in order to sketch it. And I, I think that's phenomenal because you know, I sometimes get carried away with like on to the next object and on to the next object. And I probably don't spend as much time actually observing all of the detail I can. Um, and, and really sketching just forces you to do that. You know, you really can't not. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy. If you're just taking quick photographs or just doing an observing night, it's so easy to get into the Messier marathon mindset where it's like, how many things can I see tonight? Mm-hmm. And I think I talked about this with Mark in a, a collab. We haven't actually put live yet we didn't filmed it before Christmas but neither of us has had time to edit it but just spend an hour on the same object just Mm -hmm. keep looking at it for an hour and stuff will appear that you couldn't see before and it gives your eyes a full chance to get dark adapted and even if you're not drawing it just sit with it for that length of time and you will see things about it that you didn't before and it'll give you the opportunity as well because the seeing conditions can change so dramatically in the space of an hour and this is why planetary images get such great pictures because they shoot four terabytes of video in a night and there'll be one set of videos where the seeing is really crisp and you get the chance to spot that you'll get that time where it just settles for five minutes and you suddenly see a feature that wasn't there before and it, it just how can you not feel more connected with it when you do that and especially if it's something that was discovered by the Herschels or like you mentioned Kemble in um, a recent podcast just looking at some of Kemble's objects you, you can't help but feel connected with the person that catalogued them when you do that yeah, yeah. Kemble's cascade I could literally spend six hours looking at that and not get bored <laughs> <laughs> good stuff um, so one thing we were chatting about this briefly, and I kind of wanted to, to dive into it even more now is that, um, oftentimes people write us and, and, uh, they console us about our, our bad weather here, but, uh, it sounds like your weather was even worse in the autumn and, uh, you had a Halloween tornado and it's quite badly damaged your observatory. It sounds like. Oh yeah. It's been quite the year for weather. Um, actually the UK per square mile get more tornadoes than anywhere else in the world but they tend to be very mild and 
kind of in coastal regions, so they don't do a lot of damage. But there was a really strange weather event on Halloween that meant the there was a meso low over the UK, which we don't get very often. And within the hook of that, there were 14 tornadoes within two counties, all within a few hours of each other. And on top of that, there were these really brutal straight line gusts that went from the south coast all the way up to the northeast coast of the UK. And unfortunately, one of the tornadoes went straight over the top of our house. And as as I always do, something exciting is happening. The first thing I do is grab a camera and start recording. And then my Facebook friends realise what a potty mouth I have because genuinely <laughs> it was a T2 tornado, which is only the second strongest, but it was terrifying. This enormous tree got not knocked down or broken. It was literally uprooted like two doors down. And then we could hear the roof above our heads being torn off and clanking and honestly it was so scary so when I went outside and saw four ridge tiles had gone I was like well you're a drama queen because <laughs> it actually <laughs> was nowhere near as bad for us but it was a, a lot of damage in our village and amazingly no one was hurt but the weird thing there was one tiny corner of our observatory roof that got torn off so it did let some rain in and it was raining very heavily but we managed to mop it up and that was okay now our observatory roof is made out of corrugated plastic because both my husband and I have spine problems and that's really lightweight. Unfortunately, that meant that last weekend when we had two storms back to back over the weekend, the whole southwestern corner got torn off. It was just destroyed. Um, we had like 120 mile an hour winds at times, which is really unheard of in the middle of the UK. Coastal regions get that all the time, but we're kind of almost as far from the coast as you can be in the UK. So we've had some really brutal weather. So at the moment, there's a lot of duct tape and fence posts holding everything down until we can get out and rebuild it and probably have to rethink the materials because you know if we're going to have more weather like that we need something stronger but thankfully I mean you know it, it was bad but the, the equipment's all fine the leaks didn't touch the electrics all the telescopes are okay so you know we we can't complain really <laughs> so, but yeah it's been quite quite exciting you know I spent my entire life thinking, hoping to see a funnel cloud or a tornado and a T2 goes right over your house and you're like I never want to see one again every yeah. gust of wind I'm like oh is it another one you know it was so frightening and yeah. now I, I I cannot imagine how scary it is for people in the U.S. that have those huge kind of T5s mm -hmm. I, I just can't even begin to imagine the horror of that so I've changed my opinion of tornadoes now mm -hmm. yeah I used to uh I used to love storms like summer storms uh until I became a house owner and when it started to cost me money for repairs, I no longer like them. So. Yeah, it's, uh, they are. I mean, there is something just so it, I, I, I'm always out in thunderstorms because I love photographing lightning and I've put myself in danger so many times doing that. You know, and I'm always in, in my lightning photography talk. I just preach, keep yourself safe. She says, having just showed a video of her stood on the top of a hill in a thunderstorm. But but there's something just really it's exciting, isn't it? And you know, you're oh, yeah. out in the thunderstorm, you've got lightning and thunder. It, it's just like an adrenaline rush for me. I used to ride roller coasters for my kicks. I can't do that now. My spine's wrecked. So now I photograph lightning and stand outside in gale force winds. It, it's just what I do for my kicks. So <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, awesome. it, it's not fun when you have to pay to get stuff fixed. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So, so maybe just to switch gears a little bit here, Mary, um, you and your husband do some interesting work for the UK uh, Meteor Network. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about that? Uh, it's, it sounds fascinating. It's amazing. So there, there is a, a global meteor network that exists that um, basically have got um, meteor cameras that are just these really small security cameras in a housing run off a Raspberry Pi. And it's a free piece of software called RMS, which is on GitHub. It's a, an open source project. So you can get that for free. So for under 200 pounds in the UK, you can have this full setup that is recording 
throughout every hour of the night, basically, and it records all night long and then analyzes the events. So it's looking at meteors, obviously. So single station detections will tell you whether a meteor belongs to a shower. But the minute more than one station captures an event, you can then triangulate and start calculating orbits. And also, I think the UK arm of it was primarily set up trying to find meteorite falls because it's so rare in the UK to actually have a witness meet fireball and then a meteorite recovered. That actually happened last February on the 28th of February last year. We had a massive fireball that was heading straight for us. We had it on our camera and a meteorite landed in the village about 60 miles from us. So wow. that just made our UK meteor network explode and we went from 18 cameras to 118 in a Yeah. Oh wow. wow. So we have five of those cameras. Um four of them are just standard and one has a spectral grating on it. So if we do get another big fireball, we'll be able to look at spectra because there have been so few fireballs that actually have spectral analysis attached. So I kind of do a lot of the social media stuff with UK Metro Network and help keep their YouTube channel going. But my husband is actually one of the coding team for RMS. So he's constantly coding and improving certain features. But as well as that, for the UK Metro Network, he's actually built this entire archive that lets you it's so good for outreach because a member of the public will email you. So I saw this bright fireball at 720 last night. You can then go to the archive, find a picture of it on every camera that got it, videos of the event and all the orbital analysis of that event. So they will be able to go away and say, I saw this thing. It came, it's a Trojan asteroid from the orbit of Jupiter. And this is a level of detail that we have on these orbit reports. And so Mark has worked really hard on the archive to, to get that up and running and it's phenomenal and anybody can go and search it and yeah there's a lot of people within the UK Metro Network that have done a lot of great work and it it is just the the, the network has just exploded this year obviously because of Winchcombe but no that was a really amazing fall because it turned out to be a rare carbonaceous chondrite and it was found in pristine conditions because they launched the information the following day about the strewn field asking people to go and look because normally they would have kept that quiet and sent teams out but we were in lockdown in the UK at that time so people couldn't do that and just luckily enough some family had heard something hit their drive the night before didn't think anything of it went out and there was a carbonaceous chondrite and like looked like a charcoal briquette that had landed on their on their drive and then subsequent search recovered i think they've got nearly a kilogram altogether found in fields in the surrounding area so that has been amazing for for meteor science in the uk that's really captured a lot of people's imaginations and kept my husband very busy Yeah, yeah, that that's incredible. Um, so, are there chapters of this type of work in other countries, or is it really just UK based right now? No, the global meteor network is a a, a global network. Global. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of people, and the, the guy that um, Dennis Feeder heads that up, he's actually a, a an actual academic researcher, and so he set up the global meteor network. So there is coverage across Europe, but there are other networks that exist as well. So Fripon are looking for fireballs, so they're like all sky fireball cameras so they're doing something slightly different one of the great things about the raspberry pi cameras is that they can see down to mag plus six and because of that new meteor showers are being discovered so there's been a paper published on the discovery of an entirely new meteor shower that would have gone unnoticed because the general public don't see meteors that are mag plus six i mean i would struggle to see a meteor that's that faint so just having and if you did you'd just say oh it's a sporadic you wouldn't really link the two mm-hmm. events necessarily because we all go out on the peak of the Geminids or the Persids, but we don't sit there for nine hours on a clear night, like in February where there are no meteor showers to see what meteors we might see. So, you know, and how can you know it belongs to a shower if the shower hasn't been discovered yet? So it's, it's amazing the amount of work that it's doing like that. And I think the meteor networks have also discovered that there are some resonances with asteroids that have hit earth previously. So there are some resonances with big asteroids and certain meteor showers, which is obviously important from a planetary protection perspective. So there's a lot of great work that goes on as well as just having a cool video, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. which in itself is great. 
it and engages the public, but the, there's real science going on with this, which I think is awesome. Huh. That, that's super cool. One of the neat things, um, you know, for me that has been like kind of a fun part of this podcast is occasionally we talk to people that are doing some really neat citizen science things and, uh, you know, add this to the list. This is really cool. Definitely. Yeah. We're always looking for new cameras, not so much in the middle of the UK. We've got pretty decent coverage now. We're kind of getting 16 station matches most nights now. It's a bit bonkers, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) the data processing stream has had to be improved. Let's say that (laughs) my poor husband never gets any sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Um, So what, um, what telescope do you use Mary or, or binoculars and or binoculars? Uh, You know, what's, what, what's in your gear toolbox? Well, we have quite the list between us and binocular wise, um, because say I have mobility problems and can't carry heavy things. Just if I'm doing handheld binocular stuff, I've got some Bushnell eight by 42s. They're phenomenal. They're completely waterproof. So it doesn't matter if they get a bit foggy. They're just the views through them are so crisp. And I like the big field of view that they have. They're good for just kind of scanning around. But actually in a raffle a couple of years ago at somewhere I did a talk, I won some 15 by 70 binoculars. They were they're basically Franken binoculars. They're built out of bits of other old pairs of binoculars by Steve Tonkin, who is just such an amazing knowledge on binoculars here in the UK. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's phenomenal. So he built these Franken binoculars and they are unbelievable. I mean, the views through them are stunning. I mean, it's basically two small telescopes. So I have to mount those, which is why we're in the process of building a parallelogram mount. Um, But as well as that, um, I have a really old four inch refractor that was handed down to me by a family member which is not very good for imaging but is still my favorite visual scope because it's lightweight it's easy to use and actually the field of view is really good with it it's big enough that you can kind of get all of the Pleiades in but it's not so big that you can't see a whole object so I love that but for imaging we have um, in the observatory shed we've got an eight inch Ritchie Crescent in there now on an EQ6 But my husband and I cannot agree on how to do imaging at all. So he built me my own peer so that we can both do our independent imaging because otherwise we just bicker. Um, So I've got another peer where I tend to image through a little William Optics refractor, a really small William Optics refractor. And I love that scope. And the great thing about that is we can make the most of clear nights. We can both, because we both have different interests in what we image. So Mark can do the less well-known galaxies or unheard of planetary networks while I can go back to the old faithful objects over and over again and and actually with that refractor if you put a decent barlow on there you can get in close on a lot of lunar craters so I love imaging the moon with that and as well as that we've got a 10 inch Dobsonian which doesn't come out as often as it should because that's a phenomenal telescope and we've got a little Coronado PST HL for solar scope so I do a lot of solar imaging as well when I can fit it in and so I've got white light filters for all of the other telescopes so depending what I'm in the mood for using what the scene's like I've got options so yeah it's why i fill up hard drives so quickly because i <laughs> photograph everything <laughs> yeah that's awesome that, that's a great lineup um which william optics telescope uh is that is that the 61 millimeter it's the 71 millimeter 71. i think so yeah, it's yeah. the slightly bigger one yeah, i'd, I'd nice. love one of the really little short tube ones as well because they're just good for that wider field Mm. sort of view and just put that on just a small tracking mount and it's a great grab and go setup I actually I I recently won an award from the BAA and with the prize money I invested in an outreach mount one that was not as cumbersome as an equatorial and doesn't have counterweights for small children to hit their heads on and it's phenomenal it's just a Skywatcher GTI Altaz mount and it is amazing I cannot believe how good this thing is. It's like, why did I not buy one of these years ago? So I've used that loads. I've used it a ton. So easy to set up. And I've just proved that you can do imaging on an Altaz mount by doing some short exposure pictures with it, stacking them and getting a really cracking result out of it. So, you know, I hate the whole, you can't image unless you spend 10 grand on stuff. 
mindset it really winds me up so I like to prove people wrong with that so I've done I've done some good stuff with that mount I'm looking forward to working with it more cool yeah I actually own the the same mount I bought that uh about a year and a half ago and I end up having some trouble with it I used it a lot and uh Anyway, I had to send it back to Skywatcher, but they were awesome to deal with. They sent me a box to ship it in and I shipped it back. And a month later, it came back better than ever. Yeah, it was, yeah, really, it's a, it's a really great mount though. Yeah. It just runs on batteries. You know, there's no power tanks to worry about. And the fact that it can align itself on one star and then swing to the object. And you're like, what is this witchcraft? My equatorial on a permanent pier that's polar aligned can't even do that. You know, what's going on? (laughs) It's. Crazy. Yeah, they they did an awesome job. I know I, I see some other people had the same issues like that I have had where the azimuth binds. Um, and there's been a few other challenges uh, that I've seen online. But but the actual concept for the mount is is beautiful. It's a great little mount. It's so light. I think what does it weigh? Like two pounds or something? It doesn't weigh anything. It's, yeah, it's. I mean, we've got we have a plethora of tripods in the attic. So I just bought the the extender tube so that the, yep. we don't get a collision. And we've already got a, a, a tripod that it fits on. It's great. I, I love it. And honestly, I, I just cannot believe how easy it is to use and how light it is. And when you think about what people are charging for those Unistellar, I know that it's a different object, but you know this one is so easy to use that it for me, it's well worth spending £300 on that versus £3,000 on the Unistellar because they're not that much different to use, I don't think. But... That's coming from someone that will never be able to afford a Unistellar. So yeah, I was going to say, conditioned been... myself to not want one, even though I think they are brilliant <laughs> yeah. and they are such a unique concept. But uh, yeah, yeah, this one doesn't kind of have built-in live stacking. But if you stick a laptop on it, Deep Sky Stacker does live stacking. So does Shark Cap. You could make it work the same. Yeah, I think the thing that I like the most about it is that kind of like what you said, you can you can set it up press a button and it will track. And then what I like to do is I don't really use the go-to on it. I never have. And I can just slew it to whatever I'm looking at and just like find it myself star hopping or whatever. Cause that's just how I like to observe. And then I can just hit the track object button and then throw my phone in my pocket, be changing eye pieces, do a sketch, do whatever I want. And then I can just you know, go on to the next object. Like I don't have to worry about like nudging it along like I do with my other Altaz mounts. So yeah, it's really awesome for that. It's very good. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Really, really happy with it. And it, it will definitely, when I do more face-to-face outreach again, which is starting to happen again now in the UK, then it'll be great for that. Yeah. I got to say, I was really, I really, really loved your setup. I watched the video um, tour that you and Mark uh, Radici did and uh, I just thought the observatory was awesome. Like I want to build a little observatory. Basically, if I could build an observatory identical to yours, I would be super happy. And I was watching some videos and that online. It looks like you guys really followed that advice of using the semi-transparent corrugation on the roof. Because from what I've read, when you do that, it keeps uh, a lot of light still in the observatory and it keeps like the bugs and dankness out. You know, it looks really nice too. Super pretty in there. I mean, it, we we lucked out because when we moved into this house, the previous owners had left a shed in pieces on the ground, which they'd used as a potting shed, which was on, it had, you know, like those old chaise that people used to carry kings around. It had these four things on the thing so you could pick the shed up and move it around. What? I've never seen that in my life. <laughs> so there was this mobile shed that was given to them by a next door neighbour because it had um, woodworm or something. So it, it was in pieces. So we took the corner carry things off and then just rebuilt the observatory around that. So obviously cool. we sunk the pier in quite deep and concreted around it and then the wooden floor doesn't touch the pier and we you know followed all of those things. But yeah. just that lightweight corrugated roof is so good for both of us because we haven't got around to motorizing that part yet. I think yeah. that's my husband loves technology and if there's a complicated solution to a problem, that's what he'll go with. So I, I can kind of almost hear his brain thinking that when we rebuild this, we should motorize it and i'm like please don't (laughs) (laughs) it works fine as it is but we just need to batten it down stronger or something because you know we don't have that much of a problem with condensation or anything in there it works really well so it doesn't look as cool as a dome but 
you know, it does the job and most of the bits were free. So, you know, can't complain. Yeah, I have, I have some questions about it because I'm, I'm looking at Bill and I like when I saw yours, I was like, oh, that is that is really what I'd like to have. So do you know the the general size of it, like in meters or feet? Like, do you, do you know kind of the size? How, how large um, is it? It's probably about three meters by two, something like that, maybe a little bigger. So it's not huge. If we're both in there together, we really are in each other's way. And, you know, with the with the RC8 and the big counterweights on the EQ6, there's not a lot of room either side to kind of squeeze around. One thing that we hadn't accounted for is that the roof rolled off to the south and it has a pitch on it and it cuts off more sky than we realized so we adapted it so that we put the extended the rollers out the back so we can now roll the roof back the other way as well so if we are trying to photograph planets that are really low down in the south or whatever then we've got that option so that was a modification we made afterwards without really thinking about just how much sky we were losing with that pointed roof um so that means it isn't as sealed at the ends now because it has to roll both ways but we, you know, yeah, the, we had a flood there. Like We had yet yeah, some other crazy weather last December. There was a mega flood in our village and we hadn't realised there was standing water underneath, which oh. is astonishing because we're on a high point compared to where the flood water was. But so we do have some kind of damp that's got up the walls. So we, we do need to give it a bit of attention <laughs> this year. But, you know, on the face of it, it was an old shed that had some, plywood walls stuck in it and painted and a framework for the roof with some acrylic wheels you know it really didn't cost very much to build and you think about how much it costs yeah I mean Mark's observatory Mark Radici's is insanely better than ours in terms of build quality but ours literally cost 600 pounds total I think for everything it was so inexpensive compared to buying a dome and getting it fitted or whatever and we don't have the condensation problems that you get with the dome either. So yeah, it just looks like it kind of has everything just the way like like it's a great little video if people want to see it. I think uh, I think it was on actually on Mark Radici's um, refreshing views YouTube channel. It um, is. Yeah, that that was then really nice. You can go to my channel and look at the the observatory tour of Mark's observatory. Yeah. To see, <laughs> That's see not what confusing. The extra money will buy you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it's no, we love cool. it, it because we kind of at the Royal We, I, I I didn't put a concrete floor down, but you know, I the fact that we built that ourselves and still if I'm standing in there when my husband Mark isn't in there because we can't be in there together, but you know, you stand there and it's like when I was five and I really wanted an observatory of my own and it was one of these pipe dreams and we now have one and yeah, it looks a bit shabby in, at times but you know it's our observatory and it still kind of pinched me is this real that we even have it at all yeah and yeah it's great it yeah it's super cool and then i really like because because you did one thing you, you kind of actually did sort of the thing that i want to do which is you have um like a small ish like it's really a small amateur observatory set up just the way you guys like it and then just like 10 steps um you know, on the other side, looks like maybe to the south, it, you have your little patio uh, stones, and then you have like an external pier. And I just think that is such a great way to be set up because sometimes, like I find, like I've observed in observatories, and then there's sometimes you just don't want to be in the observatory. There's there's things maybe you want to see that are really at the horizon, or sometimes, you know, when you have like people over to observe, sometimes it's better to be outside for whatever reason, easier to have people around. And that is such a such a great setup you guys have there. That's really awesome. It's been very good for our marriage to have separate work areas. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is good though, because like the two peers have got very different kind of weight limits. So we can do very different things with the different telescopes that are on there. I'm actually gonna I've I've convinced my husband to come on a YouTube video on my channel to talk about how he has things set up in there and why it's different to how I would do it and why neither of us can agree on it. Because I think it's it's interesting because neither of us is correct, that it's just a different way of working. Yeah. So I like to change the angle of my camera to frame things better or switch this out and put Barlow's on. He puts the, the Altair camera on that scope and never takes it off, never. He won't change the angle of it. He, he doesn't, he's even got a little thing to put filters in from the side. So that camera 
camera never gets taken off. And it does my head in because I want to take a picture of something and I want to put a barlow in there and I can't because I'm not allowed to touch the camera or move it. And everything is controlled from the laptop that crashes every time I go near it. So then I can't do anything. And my peer is so much simpler to use. <laughs> I just, I always go for the least technical solution and he goes for the most technical solution. And he he obviously remotes in, so he never even goes into the observatory, he'll open the roof and does everything from the dining room. Whereas I actually like being outside and getting cold and getting stressed because I've pulled the power cable out by mistake or whatever, you know, I, I just, I like being out there doing it. So it's, a, it's very different setups that we've got on those two areas. And I think it's really good to have both. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Mary, you're a really, really good imager. Uh, you know, I've been following oh, you. your, your Twitter feed where you put a lot of uh, images out. Um, what, um, do you have a favorite category of objects that you like to image or, and or are you working on any um, like imaging projects? Like, is there a certain thing you're working towards or trying to acquire? Um, I'd quite like to kind of get images of all the Messier objects because I've got a few of them. Um, but the trouble is I love everything that's in the sky, even during the day. So if it's not atmospheric optics, I'm taking pictures of aircraft vapor trails or clouds or whatever and videos of tornadoes. You know, I'm just if it's in the sky, I love it. And that really poses you with a big problem because what the heck do you choose to image at night? So I always tend to return to the old favorites and if the ones you know are going to turn out well because they're nice and bright but like this week I thought I, I've I love atmospheric optics and I'd never seen the Gegen shine so I was thinking I can't don't think I can see the Gegen shine from here but if I take some wide field shots and stack them maybe I can and I did that and on the picture there is a bright spot around the anti-solar point and I still don't know if it's an artifact from my processing whether it's wishful thinking or whether I did catch it but the fact that I may have caught it is really exciting to me because it's something I haven't done before and then last night I was out taking pictures of zodiacal light, which is only the second time I've done that. First time I've got the whole cone. And again, that's not like a wow factor for most people because it's a tiny smudge on a picture, but that's intergalactic dust. That's kind of so cool. Mm -hmm. And it isn't the crowd pleaser. It doesn't tend to do well online when you take pictures of stuff like that. But personally, I think it's great to be able to, to do the less well-known stuff. So I love star clusters because you can do them in short exposures and do loads of them in a night i love globular clusters i love nebulae i love the moon i love comets and sometimes i'm so overwhelmed by what i want to image that i don't image anything i just go out and sit with my binoculars for a bit because i really need to get one of those planning softwares and actually make a list and just follow my own list because oh, yeah. it just gets a bit overwhelming because you know, it's all beautiful isn't it everything up yeah. there is gorgeous gorgeous Can so, totally... yeah, it's really hard to know what to image next <laughs> no that I, I i can relate there's many times where chris and i and and some other friends will be observing down in grasslands which is our very dark sky site that's uh, about three hours away from us and you know we will take telescopes and eyepieces and and we get there we'll set them up and then there's sometimes we don't look through the telescopes we just sit down in our chairs and take the sky in naked eye or with binoculars because there's just so many things that are amazing to see so yeah i think yeah. it's important that particularly beginners realize that there's a lot of astronomy you can do without a telescope so mm -hmm. the milky way aurora meteor showers none of this needs even binoculars so i think it's really good to image those things to show people that you don't need a telescope to do some of this stuff you don't even need binoculars to do some of that and i think it's really important to get that message out because there are you know people just have this misconception you need something to set up like the Hubble to be able to do any astronomy and it's just not true so mm -hmm. there's nothing better than just sitting out in a recliner on a frosty clear night and I've done it sat out in six inches of snow observing Geminids and it's wonderful even more wonderful now I've got a plug-in heated blanket I could sit out there for even longer <laughs> that's, that's a nice accessory yeah <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Um, yeah, so maybe we can talk about, do you have any more questions about uh, the photography for, for Mary Shane? No, no, I'll turn okay. it over to you. Yeah, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch and go to sketching now, if that's okay with you, Mary. 
Yeah. All right. So you were talking earlier about uh, like doing photographs and and enjoying being out at the telescope as well as doing a lot of your sketching um, at the desk once you go inside. And I was watching your videos and uh, I was really fascinated by your technique because so for me, when I was getting into sketching, I really had a lot of uh, preconceived notions and ideas and just like how how this all worked. And most of it was wrong, of course. (laughs) And, And so then. I, I learned that for, for me anyway, what I like to do is I like to go out and do um, perhaps what what my my uh, more uh, artistic friends would call like a study. Like I'll go out and do like four or five different sketches of of something or a bunch of things and then come in and, and bring them together like like inside. But I was really curious about about your approach because you're doing um, photos and then often bringing those inside and and combining those with with what you've seen as well can you tell us a little bit about your approach yeah i mean if i'm sketching at the eyepiece i try to keep it really simple so first of all the paper doesn't have time to get soggy from dew and all of that stuff so i don't have a heated clipboard which i need one of by the way i didn't know that was a thing until recently um so it's really good to just do stuff on white paper and pencil but my passion is doing stuff on black paper and that's actually quite hard to do when it's dark outside but i i just love the way things come to life on black paper and so i use um a combination of just actual pencil strokes and blending but i also also love to get a a scalpel blade and scrape the pastel dust onto the page and blend it with a brush because it gives you more control you get a softer kind of effect from it so if for example you was taking doing a picture of a star cluster that has nebulosity there's nothing you can do with a pencil that will blend into an effect that looks like that glow that you get around stars you just don't get that with a pencil stroke whereas if you just strategically scrape a bit of dust or you can do this with a pencil on white paper as well scrape a bit of the dust on then use a small dry paintbrush to just blend it or dab it into the page what you get is this really subtle glow around the stars and then you can build that up into a more detailed picture and so you can do it in layers if you really want to get into the detail and kind of do some background glow and then go in with your pencil and show the edges of some kind of nebula clouds or whatever but that that just scraping the pastel on the page and dabbing it in with a brush has just been an absolute game changer for me. It gives you such a different feel and it's more ethereal and more like what I'm seeing through the telescope. So how did, how did you come up with that? Is that something you just kind of learned by um, just your own experimentation? Are you following somebody else's technique? Cause I know there's been some other people who have talked about yeah, this Yeah, I'm sure somebody on Facebook told me that they did it using graphite pencil to add star glow. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. Um, I've never done it with pencil and start on, on white paper, but I instantly tried it with the um, with some of the nebula pictures I did on black paper with the pastels. And I was just like, oh my God, this, this technique is phenomenal. I think I discovered it properly when I was doing it. I'd set myself, the UK Metro Network did this fireball challenge medal thing last year and I challenged myself to do an astronomy sketch every day for two months so while I was doing that one of the reasons I wanted to do was to try new techniques because you do get stuck in a rut with your drawing style so that kind of made me think yeah I'm gonna have a go with some of these new things and as soon as I'd done it once I'm like that that's how I sketch from now on I just love the way that looks and I haven't used it on lunar stuff so much because I think that's more crisp, you know, crisp edges, but with nebulae, it's perfect. It's just so perfect. Nice. Do you have any, um, and I, and I always, I always ask this because like I do some sketching and I sort of have my favorite pens and, and pencils and papers, but do you have any like specific papers, pens, pencils, or pastel uh, recommendations that that you would make? Pastel pencils that I love are Stabilo Carbothello, and they just seem to have a better payoff and they stick to the page better. I tend not to use paper design for pastel drawing because it's very textured, which is usually what you want if you're doing not like conventional pastel art. But I like, and there's some sketching pads that I got off Amazon just made by a company called Frisk and the page is really smooth, but because it's so smooth, you can blend more easily. So it's also easier to rub out a mistake if you make one. 
but I just find that my layers blend in so much better on that kind of paper than the textured stuff. Just depends on the feel that you're going for. You can still do some really good stuff on the textured paper, but personally, I like the smooth stuff. The downside of that is that you can never fix the drawing. It's um, as soon as I've done it, I photograph it and then it goes into a folder and never comes out again because it just rubs off so easily. And I've never yet found a spray fixer that doesn't dull everything down. So I don't fix it. I just put it in a folder. Then I get prints done straight away. So I've got a folder of astronomy sketches, but the oh. prints of my sketches <laughs> and the originals never leave my house. So they're all in a safe place and I don't get them out and take them out and look at them, which is kind of sad. So I either put them straight in a frame if I really like it or it goes in my folder and that's where it lives forever more but you know the prints <laughs> come out really good and it means I can take it around with me and show people what I do without risk of first of all it getting stolen because yeah. that's a real possibility or someone knocking their coffee all over it yeah whatever, that's a know, real possibility <laughs> very much so I, I just I can't bear to take them out of the house at all ever so <laughs> so yeah it's really it's a really nice medium but the the downside is that it has to then stay in a, a safe place forever more. So it might not be for everyone to do that. And what about the brush? Like what kind of brushes are you just using like, uh, like art brushes or what are you using for brushes? Yeah. I don't even know where the brushes that I find work best for this is some really old ones that look like they could do with a good hairbrush that they're, they're very soft then they're not the tightly packed brushes they're one of the very loosely packed soft slightly fluffy brushes okay if i was to use it for conventional painting they'd be hideous because they're also kind of everything's sticking out at funny angles but it's perfect for that soft blending so i've got two okay. different sizes of that i don't even know where i got those brushes i've never bought them i've inherited them at some point in the past and they've been sat in a brush box and i've never use them because they're rubbish but for this they're perfect mm. so i never wash them because i just dust them on a bit of tissue afterwards and they're ready to go again the pastel doesn't stick to them so oh wow really good that's that's yeah, really neat sorry, i don't know what sort of brush that is but just that's a soft, right. fluffy one would be okay yeah sometimes that sort of general um recommendation is really good because we might not have the same stuff over here that uh, that you have available uh, in the uk so yeah that's really helpful Super. I like pastel pencils rather than the sticks because you can be more precise with your pencil strokes when you are drawing. So that's why, and they're less messy. You know, if you've ever done pastels and charcoal stuff, you've done half getting a mess. So the pencils are cleaner. Yes, I have a big mess here that's permanently char charcoal <laughs> etched into the desk that I'm sitting at, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I don't have an art background. I didn't know how messy that would be until I did it. So it was really like, I felt like the, you know, the grade six, you know, child sitting at his desk and, you know, in the house and making this massive mess and like trying it's to all up your forearms. Oh man. Yeah. I'm still finding, as well. still finding charcoal <laughs> around here. So yeah, I know that's good. Advice. Never wear a white t-shirt when you're drawing in charcoal. <laughs> no, no. Well, actually a lot of my computer parts here have charcoal all over them just because it's like, it's like in the desk. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I, I'm not very good at it. Um, but you do some, some sketching workshops uh, can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about your workshops and do you, do you do any online workshops as well, or is it just sort of in-person stuff when you're able to do that? Um, primarily it used to be in person, but obviously once the pandemic hit, it, things had to change. So if I'm doing it in person, I have a stash of black paper and pastel pencils and charcoal pencils. And I, I've got, a4 prints of my favorite lunar craters or deep sky objects and I take those with me give people the pens and paper give them a starting point of how to get going and off they go and they produce amazing work so it's easy when you're there in person but what I've had to do online is that the arm that my microphone's on now I put my webcam on so that I've got a boom arm pointing at my hands and then I usually have the photograph we're copying on a screen share and then get people to change the view so my hands drawing a side by side with that and then I take people through step by step 
step. But because at home people aren't going to have the pastels, I do my online workshops are just using white paper and pencil because people are going to have that. So it can be printer paper and an HB pencil and a rubber. That's all you need or a pencil eraser. Um, basically, that is all you need to do it. And people still come away with some really amazing work. And then I'll show them a quick time lapse of how I do it in pastels. So if people want to go out and invest in that, they can. But online workshops is always just white paper. And that's been really good for me because that's not my preferred medium. So it's made me have to learn how to draw better in pencil so that I can teach it. So it pushed me out of my comfort zone having to do them online. So I'm really glad about that because there's some things now that I really love doing in pencil that I wouldn't have done in pencil before. So it's been really good having the option to do either. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, last question from us, Mary. Um, so, so last year you were awarded the 2021 Sir Patrick Moore prize, uh, by the British Astronomical Association for your outreach work. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that award and, and some of the outreach that you do? Yeah, I'm still kind of blown away by the fact that I was even nominated for that award. Um, so basically, I do talk to astronomy societies, and you know, I've been doing that for a number of years now. But as well as that, I do things to kind of like the U3A, the University of the Third Age, of like groups of retired people in the UK. So I do talks to groups like that, to the Women's Institute. Um, I do stuff in schools for Cubs, Scouts, Brownies, um, for local high schools, teaching, sketching, just a just a wide range of different places locally. And I've even done stuff on teleconf call to visually impaired people. So I think I was specifically awarded my outreach work for promoting astronomy within the greater community outside of what I do with astronomy people but also for encouraging children because I do an awful lot of teaching children how to draw and I think it, the kids are so excited when they see the picture that they've drawn after my workshop and you know I just doing the craft and the sketching stuff I've done free workshops with people in the village during pandemic so their children had something to do one evening and I, I just get so much enjoyment out of doing that. You know, mm -hmm. I don't do it hoping to get an award, but it was really nice that it was recognised because I do pretty much burn myself out doing this stuff. And I, this week has been crazy, like doing fe online festivals and talks and stuff, but I just love it. I, I love the fact that I, I feel really blessed that I have the opportunity to share that stuff. And so I rarely say no, which is why I'm always too tired, but you know, it is, it is really nice to have that recognized, you know, it was, and, and it meant I had the money to buy that little mount, which is going to get used for outreach. So that's perfect. Yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, outreach uh, is super rewarding and, uh, the level that you do is outstanding. So that's, uh, that's incredible. Yeah, there's just one of me. It's not like I'm a big organization. If someone mm -hmm. books me, it's me that does it. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I need to try and spread things out a bit more and do a few mm -hmm. things less in a week, I think, just to preserve my health. But <laughs> I know it's hard to say no when, you know, especially when you're asked to do something for children, because as a woman doing astronomy, you really feel that you need to fly the flag for that being that inspirational person that might just fire that inspiration in another young girl. So mm -hmm. I kind of always say yes to schools and local children's groups if I can possibly squeeze it into my diary. And, you know, a lot of that is done for free because I, I would rather do it for free than, than not be able to pay me. So mm -hmm. nice. <laughs> nice. No, that's just, that's just amazing. Um, you know, and this, this conversation, you know, I'll tell you the the thing that's really come through Mary is just your passion with all this is it's like really getting me fired up to do more <laughs> astronomy, even just yep. as we talk, it's just been so, so neat. And just all the different aspects that you're into, um, you know, it's just really cool how you're into meteor, uh, you know, uh, observation and meteor uh, science, you're, you're into uh, sketching as well as photography, as well as, you know, get, getting lost in the evening under a heated blanket in your recliner, just with your binoculars. <laughs> uh, I, I think just what anybody who's interested in astronomy can relate to, to one of your aspects, if not all of them. <laughs> it's very cool. 
yeah and people often comment they don't know where I get my energy from and it's like a lot of the time I don't unfortunately I don't have a lot of energy left to do any actual astronomy these days so I do need to get the work-life balance back a little bit so I've got more time to go out imaging and make the most of the clear skies when we have them yeah well we really appreciate you coming coming on today Uh, do you have anything to add before we wrap up uh, this morning No, it's been really great to talk. And I hope that people do feel that they can go out and have a go at drawing something because of all things that I do, I'm so passionate about the sketching because honestly, it really does make you a better observer. So well, congratulations to you guys as well on your 200th episode. I'm really honoured that I'm the guest on this special landmark. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, it was that was sort of our intent was was to hope to have you on for this uh, 200th episode and and to celebrate that because really feel like you kind of embody a lot of the stuff that we're trying to uh, convey to people as well. Fantastic. Excellent. Anything to add, Shane, before we wrap up here? No, other than just a big thanks, Mary. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So uh, if you want to find uh, Mary McIntyre, she's uh, easy to find. Let me tell you, it's uh, Mary McIntyre, <laughs> F-R-A-S on YouTube. And she also has marymacintyreastronomy.co.uk. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks again to everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, Or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.